All right, well, um, who is ready to have their toes stepped on a little bit this morning? Anybody wearing steel toes this morning? Anybody? Steel toe boots? You can wear steel toes to church, it's cool. Um, because Jesus is going to do something today, uh, and he's going to kind of come for all of us. Uh, he's going to push against us. And one of the things I love about Jesus, and that uh, is... It's so beautiful, but it's also so challenging, is that he's kind of an equal opportunity offender. Um, he will come and push against everyone for all kinds of different things, and when you think, I'm good, he's like, yeah, but what about this over here? Uh, and so we're going to see that a little bit today. Uh, Jesus is going to show up and offend those uh, who may be more um, kind of conservative and fundamentalist in an approach to faith. And then he's also going to come along and say, now hold up, because I'm also going to offend those of you who may be more, a little more uh, progressive or liberal in terms of faith. When I'm talking about conservative or progressive, I'm talking about in terms of theology and faith and practice in the Christian faith. I'm not talking about politics, although there's a lot of bleed over, because in our context in America, we've so woven the two together. But he's going to come along and, and, and push in that area like he does in so many different ways and say, so often we want to go, well, it's either number one or it's number two. And he's going, um, actually, I have a path number three that I would like you to go down. It's not one or two. There's a different path that leads to life. So we're going to kind of find that tension in the, the, the text that we're looking at today. Uh, we're walking through the Gospel of John as a church. Uh, we've been kind of going through it throughout this year, taking breaks here and there. We've made it all the way to chapter 5. Um, and that's where we started things up last week. And so we're going to kind of continue that journey. John is one of the accounts of the life of Jesus. Um, he was one of Jesus' closest followers, disciples, and friends, and eyewitness to the life and the events uh, of Jesus' life. And he brings us this account um, and, and wants us to really see Jesus for who he is and come to put faith in him. So last week we started in John 5. And we said there's kind of a shift that starts to happen in John 5 where there's a growing opposition to Jesus and his message and who he is and what he's doing. We looked at this, this healing that Jesus does. Um, he, he shows up at a pool called uh, Bethesda, and it's a pool where all these sick people and disabled people, they, they gather around this pool because the, the rumor is kind of the, the, the local word that spreads is there's healing powers in the pool. And if you get in at the right time, that person will be healed. Uh, and so Jesus shows up, and there's just, imagine, hundreds of people just waiting to, to hope to have their shot to be healed. And he walks up to one guy in particular, a guy who had been, like, paralyzed for 38 years, and he heals this guy. And so we looked at that last week and this beautiful idea of, of Jesus who he heals when he comes to heal our deepest issue of sin and death. Uh, and we're kind of going to backtrack just a couple of verses into what we looked at last week to give us a ramp uh, into what we're going to look at today. So if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be in John chapter uh, 5. If you don't, it's on the screen or there's Bibles uh, at the back of the room if you want to grab one of those. Uh, but let's do this thing, okay? John 5 starting in verse 8. This is Jesus talking to this paralyzed guy. He says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well. He picked up his mat and he started to walk. That's kind of where we landed things last week. This, this idea that, uh, that Jesus tells him to get up and the man doesn't make himself get well. He doesn't have to try to uh, like, er, like just will himself to getting well or, or healing himself. The, the healing is something that happens to him. But then as a result of that healing, he says, now pick up your mat and walk. Now, because of what I've done in your life, go do something different. Live a different way. Um, and we looked at that. We talked about this, again, this idea of sin. That If you're a follower of Jesus, he's, he's told you to get up. Here's a new life. You've got forgiveness. You've got grace. You've got this resurrection life that you're living. Now go and walk in that. And then he says, though, at the end of that, we, we didn't really get into this last week. That's where we're going today. That the day that that happened was the Sabbath. The day in which Jesus healed this guy was the Sabbath. And this is going to be the thing that gets him into trouble with some of the religious leaders. 
This is going to be the thing that kind of tips the scale and start, we're going to start seeing that increasing opposition to who Jesus is and what he's doing because he's healing on the Sabbath. And for us, we may be like, well, that's, that's not that big of a deal. What, what, what's, what's going on with that? Uh, we don't really have a great concept of, of Sabbath. So what I want to do to start things off is I want to paint us a picture of what Sabbath was in Jesus' culture and context to a first century Jewish person, what it was meant to be, and why him healing this guy on the Sabbath was going to be such uh, an issue. So the Sabbath was a weekly uh, day of rest for the Jewish people. It was built into the rhythm of their lives. They worked for six days. On the seventh day, they were to rest. They were to take a break. They were to focus on God. And it was this, this command that came out of this point in their history. All the way back in the Old Testament in Exodus, God rescues and redeems the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And as he, as he brings them out of slavery in Egypt, he tells them, you're my people, I'm your God, I've saved you, you didn't do this, but because you're my people, there's going to, we're in this covenant, we're in this relationship, and there's some terms to this relationship. Here's kind of, and God defines the terms of what it will look like, because we've got a group of people who are coming out of 400 years in slavery that have no idea, like, well, how do we live our personal lives? How do we relate to one another? How do we set up governments? How do we, how do we relate to our neighbors around us in these foreign countries? It's all brand new, and so God gives them the law, what we would call the old covenant. And within that, within the top 10 of that, if you're familiar with the 10 commandments, within that kind of top 10 of here's how I want you to live, there's this command on Sabbath, which just as a side note, like, you, you have to like just love a God who's like, I've got rules for your life and these are gonna lead to your good and one of the rules I have is you need to take a break. Like I'm telling you to rest. To a group of people who'd spent 400 years in slavery who worked 24 seven, who all they knew was work, 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 go, 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 go. He says, rest, stop, breathe. So let's look at that. That's found in um, Exodus chapter 20. Here's the, the command for the Sabbath. God speaking to the nation of Israel says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You're to labor six days and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien, so someone who's a foreigner, who's within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and declared it holy. That there, there's something about the seventh. God said he's, he's blessed it. It's holy. It's set apart. It's different. Just take a break. And it's interesting, the thing, that, like, the reason that he gives for that, that he anchors it to creation. Now, to us, as maybe like modern people, this seems kind of strange. It seems a little weird. I know for me, like when I heard this, it was like, okay, he anchors this to creation. You need to take a break. And kind of the, the reasoning he gives is, well, God worked and he took a break. And so you need to take a break as well. And that always bothered me because when I was younger, I was like, wait a minute. So does that like mean like God got tired? Where he was like, whew, well, that was a lot of work. I think I need to take a nap now. Like, is, is that why God rested? Because he was so tired that he needed to take a nap. And I'm like, Probably not, because that's not a very good theology of God. If it's like, well, yeah, God gets tired like people do, and he needs to, to take a break, needs to take a, take a nap. So there's something else going on. There's something that so often we don't see, again, as kind of modern Western people. But if we look at this through the eyes of someone who's an ancient Israelite, someone who's living in the ancient Near East, it makes a lot more sense. He anchors this to, like, the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2. God makes everything in, in six days and then there's a day of rest. And as modern people, we want to come to a text like that and ask all kinds of modern questions and be like, well, like, is, like, is this telling us something scientifically, how long it actually took the earth to be made? Or is it, is it metaphor? Is it what, like, how did exactly, like, what are the physical processes by which 
the earth came into existence. Something that an ancient Israelite would have no possible concept of. They saw the world very, very differently. When they saw God created, it was a no-brainer to them that, well, of course, like the physical universe, God made this. When you read the, the creation account, most scholars are like, it's this picture of God bringing form and function out of a world that was hostile to human existence. And when you read ancient Israel's scripture, but you also look at kind of their neighbors, people that lived at the same time from the surrounding nations, they all have these similar themes when it comes to creation and when it comes to the way things go. Most scholars talk about how the creation account Genesis 1 and 2 is structured like a, a temple dedication. That in the ancient world, they would, they would construct temples to these various gods, and there'd be kind of a forming of the parts of the temple and then a filling of the different parts. And creation kind of goes that way in the Genesis account. God, God makes these different, forms these different things. We have like the land in the sky, and then there's the filling of the land in the sky. But at the end of a, a temple building process, there was always like after the dedication is when whatever deity of whatever group of people were building this temple to, at the end they would dedicate it and they would say that the God that they built that to would come and rest in the temple. But the idea of a God coming and resting was this God is going to take up um, his place of kind of rule and authority and reign in the temple. And so to the ancient Israelite, when they hear this idea of God creates everything, this picture of the whole cosmos is his temple. Like that God can't be just kind of designated or relegated to a physical building, that the whole earth, the earth and everything in it, like the whole creation is this temple, and God wants to come and dwell and to live in and with his creation. And so the seventh day rest, when God rests, it's this idea of he is taking up residence. He's sitting at the place of authority, of, of ruling and reigning. And so it brings some, some, some clarity to this idea that Sabbath is a gift. It's a reminder to us. The reason we rest isn't just because we get tired, although that's true. That's the practical end of things. And the reason God rested wasn't because he got tired. It's the statement that he is ruling and reigning. So us as human beings, the idea is you need to rest because it reminds you that the world doesn't depend on you. That the weight of the world does not need to be on your shoulders that you can stop, you can slow down for a minute and go, you know what, even if I don't work today, even if I take a breather, I, I can know and trust that the world's going to keep turning, that God is in control, that he is ruling, he is reigning, he is on his throne. It's a, it's a point to stop and remember and go, God loves me, he sees me, he's proven himself faithful over and over and over, that everything I have comes from him, so I don't have to keep striving, I don't have to keep working. And for us, that, that seems shocking, but to a culture like this that was this you know, hand-to-mouth, like, kind of culture. If you didn't work, you didn't eat. Right? It wasn't like that refrigeration and storage and those things. Like, no, no, I want you to stop. I want you to rest and trust that I will take care of you, that I am in control. He says, that's why you rest. And so it's this beautiful gift that, for as an individual, it, it provides this opportunity for you to rest and reset and breathe and to focus on God and focus on the blessings he's given you and give him praise for that. But then for Israel, it was also, it also had social implications. Let's back up uh, to the earlier part of that passage um, there in Exodus. He says, listen, you must not do any work, but neither will your son or your daughter or your servants or the resident alien or foreigner who lives with you. And so there's this social implication as well. It's like the Sabbath rest is for everyone. It puts everyone on an equal playing field that, that even though like the foreigner among you, even though he's not an Israelite, he still gets to rest. Because this would kind of be abused, and what would happen is those who were maybe lesser in society, they would have to continue to work, while those who are a little bit more well-off, they could, they could rest. And even in our own world, we can kind of see the parallels of this. Right, you go on a vacation to get some rest. 
in theory. I happen to think vacations are more stressful than just staying at home. Anybody else with me on that? It's like, I am more tired when I come back from vacation. But you go on a vacation, you're like, okay, I'm going to go and rest. But for me to go and find rest, somebody else has to work. Right? If I'm going to drive somewhere, I've got to stop and get gas, and someone's got to be there you know, 24-7, usually at a roadside gas station, keeping that place open. If I go to a hotel or a resort, someone's got to make sure my room is ready. Someone's got to prepare my meals for me. Someone's got to clean up after me. And so I'm resting, but somebody else has to work. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it's, there's often this dynamic where those who are resting uh, and those who are working, those who can't afford to rest are working so that we can take our vacation. And so to ancient Israel, this also became a social thing. It was like, no, 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 everybody rests. God wants everyone to experience this Sabbath rest. And so there's these social implications. There's also implications for creation. He says, listen, your, even your livestock, your animals are going to rest on the Sabbath as well. They, they, they get a break as well. And the, the Sabbath cycle, every seven days, it, it gets kind of magnified out throughout Scripture. It becomes also every seven years you take a break. And every, on every seventh year, everybody's debts are forgiven. And we're like, hey, that sounds good. Everyone's, every seven years, everyone's debts are forgiven, but then every seven years, they're not supposed to plant anything in the fields. That you let your fields rest. And that whatever grows up, because, you know, seeds drop from the, the year prior, well, it's, again, it's trusting that whatever's going to grow up in that field is going to be enough for you. So let the creation rest. And so there's this, this idea over and over of, of you can rest and you can trust God individually on a kind of like a social, like a collective level. And even like the creation itself, you don't have to keep working. You can rest. And it actually is, is this drawing back to, to Eden to when, before sin entered into the world, it's this idea of, of how it was supposed to be. If you kind of go through the, the, the structure of, of the creation narrative, every morning and night, it's, there's morning and evening, the first day, morning and evening, the second day, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. But when you get to the seventh day, there's just morning. There's no evening. It's this declaration that the seventh day rest, when God comes and rests, that was, there was not supposed to be an end to that. There's supposed to be God resting and dwelling in his creation with the people he created in his image. And we were supposed to enjoy that kind of rest. Sin comes in and breaks that. And for Israel, these kind of Sabbath cycles were a way of bringing them back to that and reminding them of the rest they were to find in God. So that's what Sabbath was supposed to be. It was a gift. It was beautiful. It was meant to lead to flourishing, to life, for them to catch a, to catch a breath and to recuperate, to focus on God and their faith and their family and all the blessings that he had given. But it had become twisted. It had become warped. Along with the Sabbath command, some kind of oral traditions began to develop, where the religious leaders of Israel started adding things on. These oral traditions, eventually, um, they got collected and written down into what became known as the Mishnah. And within the Mishnah, it was like, okay, we're supposed to keep Sabbath, but what exactly, define for me exactly what it looks like to work and to not work. And so there are 24 chapters on what it means to work and not work. It's like, okay, okay, don't work, we got that, but what exactly does that look like? Here's a book on what it means to work or not work. There are 39 in the Mishnah, 39 different categories of things that could be classified as work. And among the things that could be classified as work would be healing someone. For those in that culture who are physicians, they were not allowed to, to do work and practice medicine on the Sabbath. The only time you could is if someone's life was threatened. If they were going to die, you could provide immediate medical attention, but if not, it can wait till tomorrow. Also, wouldn't be allowed to be done would be according to the Mishnah. Again, not according to the Sabbath, not according to God's law, but according to man-made things that we're going to put on top of it. You couldn't carry your mat. 
And so when Jesus tells this guy, pick up your mat and walk, in the eyes of the religious leaders, he's commanding this guy to break the Sabbath. They had put all these additional rules and regulations on top of it, and Jesus is so aware of this. And so when he heals this guy on the Sabbath, like he's poking the bear. Like he, he knows exactly what he's doing. It's not like he, he you know, goes up and he heals this guy, and he's like, oh, Sabbath, that was today? I forgot. My, my bad, my bad, guys. It was an honest mistake. Like, he's not doing that. And he, there's no rush to heal the guy. The guy had been there for 38 years. He could be like, hey, it's Sabbath. I'll come back tomorrow and heal you. He doesn't do that. He's like, no, I'm going to heal you right here, right now. Get up, take your mat, and walk. He knew it would get a, re- a reaction out of the religious leaders. He's pointing them to something bigger. So he heals them. It's on the Sabbath. Let's get back into John. And so the Jews, and, and Jews was kind of John's shorthand way. It's not all the Jewish people, but specifically the religious leaders. The, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. Again, it's not, not the law like God's, like the whole law, like the Old Testament, the law that God had given him. The law that prohibited him from picking up his mat was the man-made law. It was, we took God's law, and we know that's authoritative, and that's binding on your life, but we're going to make our interpretation of the law binding on your life as well. And we're going to give you all these additional things that you have to do. Prohibits you from picking up your mat. And and they they get into this thing of just, it becomes all about, it's the do's and the don'ts. It's follow the rules, do the right things, don't do the wrong things. And oh, by the way, here's all this additional stuff that we're going to give you. They began really majoring on the minors when it came to their faith in God. In fact, Jesus kind of calls them out over and over for this. There's one particular time in Matthew 23 where he says that the religious leaders, they like to take to tie up heavy loads and put them on people. But then they won't lift a finger to help the people carry it. And he, from there, he proceeds into this section that's called like the woes. He pronounces all these woes on the religious leaders, just one of them to give you kind of an example. He says, woe to you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, right? So they're, they're tithing, a tithe was something they were supposed to do, 10% of their uh, very valuable things. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So it's not that you shouldn't have given your stuff, that's important, but you're missing the main thing. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Guys, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're so focused on the rules. You're so focused on the small stuff. You're missing the heart behind the law. And this, is, this wasn't just a Jesus thing. Like, this wasn't something new that he came along and did that, that these religious leaders wouldn't be familiar with. These religious leaders, they, they, they would have had what, would, what we consider the Old Testament. Their kind of scriptures, like, memorized. And so they would have been very familiar with the Old Testament prophets who are constantly kind of just banging this gong in the same direction of like, you're missing it, you're missing it, you're missing it. Uh, Isaiah says stuff like this over and over again. In Isaiah chapter 1, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah is, is telling the people of Israel, I hate your festivals, I hate your Sabbaths, it's all just a bunch of noise. Well, why is that? We get an idea at, at the end of that passage, he says, well, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, he's like, you're doing all this religious activity and you're all about following the rules, but it's, you have the wrong motivation. You're missing the point. Or Hosea 6.6 6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. 
I don't care about your offerings and, and, and your tithes and all of these things when they're just ritual, when it's just empty religion, when you're missing the heart behind it. You've made it all about religious rules, and you think that in keeping these rules that you are pleasing God, but you're missing the point. The, the law was meant to lead to life. It was meant to push them in the direction of God and flourishing and what he wanted for them, but they had made the law an end uh, in of itself. One scholar says it this way. I thought he summed it up so well. He said, in, in practice, the letter of the law had come to dominate its spirit. So the, the, the spirit of the law, again, was to lead to human flourishing. It was to point people to God. It was to, to, to do these beautiful, beautiful things. It was a gift. But the letter of the law, we just have to do this, had come to dominate its spirit. Outward conformity replaced heart commitment. They lost sight of the ultimate purpose of the law. It's molding a life, modeling a life which pleased God in witness to his gracious choice of Israel. And the law became an end in itself. It became about the law. It became doing these things. Here's the things you do. Here's the things you don't do. Here's the additional things we're putting on you. What's really interesting is um, at Jesus, in Jesus' day, like the different rabbis had different ways of interpreting the Torah or the Old Testament. Uh, and their, their way of interpreting and applying the Torah or the Old Testament, their way of doing that was often called a rabbi's yoke. It was a rabbi's yoke. And so if you became a follower of a particular rabbi, you became his disciples, it was said that you were taking on that rabbi's yoke. Jesus says something really interesting about that. And oftentimes, if you're familiar with this verse, we take it to kind of be like, oh, you know, when I'm tired, Jesus gives me strength. And certainly there's some truth to that. But within the context of what was happening in the religious culture of Israel, this idea of a rabbi's yoke, it makes so much more sense. He says, come to me. All of you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. You've seen with these other rabbis and the other religious leaders, you, you've experienced their yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In the context of what's going on, Jesus is, is saying, listen, if you, if you are burnt out and weighed down by the religiosity of the day, if, you are burnt, if you're burnt out and weighed down by just religion and, and the, the, all the do's and the don'ts, then come to me and experience the real thing. Come and experience what it was supposed to be, what the law was ultimately pointing to. And the, the thing is this, there's always, within like a faith community, both then and now, there's always a gravitational pull towards legalism. There's just, there's just something about it. If you've, you know, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a little a little, a little bit of time, a lot of time. At some point, either you've been there or you probably will be there. There comes a point where it's just like, uh, when you first start following Jesus, like, yeah, I'm excited, things are wonderful. And then slowly, if we're not paying attention, we just drift into legalism. We drift into like, oh, I'm gonna be a good person, so I gotta do these things and don't do these other things. And, and also, not only that, but then I'm gonna look down my nose and I'm gonna judge other people who are living differently or not doing the things I think they should be doing. And there's just kind of this creep towards its rules, its regulation, its religion. And Jesus wants to confront it now, just like he did then. So for, for those of us who maybe have a more conservative or fundamentalist view of faith, maybe that was uh, your upbringing, what you experienced at church, maybe that's kind of the world that you're still in now. You know, it, it so easily becomes, okay, well, I grew up in church, and so I know, I know the routine. I know what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. Got to follow the rules. Go to church every week, sometimes twice a week. Right? Some of you remember the old Wednesday night. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, okay? At the church all the time. Re I got to read my Bible every single day. That's what I have to do. 
And not that there's anything wrong with those things, but we begin to think that those are the things that makes me good with God. That those are the things that, that really my faith revolves around. That they're not, that they become the end in of themselves instead of the thing that points us and draws us to Jesus. It's easy to begin to make then not only those things that are good, but then be able to put our own kind of stuff on top of that. Things like, well, you know, you're a real Christian. You've got to dress a certain way. You can only use a certain translation of the Bible. Your church service has to look a certain way. And, and we, we drift towards this kind of legalistic structure. And the crazy thing is, like, you know, I'm not saying this from someone that, that is like, that's never been me. Oh, it was me for a long time. And you're just kind of angry and you're just like, I'm righteous and all of the rest of you aren't. But, but we get in this place where it's like we go to church and we hear teaching and we hear a preacher and we read the Bible and, and we love, we love it when Jesus is like, he's calling out religious hypocrisy or we love it whenever Jesus, he's like, he's at the party and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners are there and Jesus is like, these are my people and this is who I'm here for. And sometimes we're like, yes and amen, we love that Jesus. But when it shows up in my church or in my life, I don't like it so much. I love that Jesus calls out religious hypocrisy. I love that Jesus welcomes everyone and says, you know, I'm here for the sinners, I'm here for the sick. But, you know, that guy at work, and he's got a mouth on him, and he drinks too much. I don't think I like him. Or, you know, oh, you know what? I, I saw that. You see that per did you see that person come to church? You see all those tattoos. <gasps> I don't know if they can be here. I think that person might be gay. I don't know if they can be here pastor at that church wears shorts sometimes. I don't think we go to church there. <laughs> right? And Jesus comes along and says, hey, listen, if that's you, I think you're missing the point. He wants to offend those of us that kind of drift in that legalistic direction. And he's called out in us. And again, there's this, it's so easy to fall into that way of thinking and some of you, again, that's your story, that's where you've been, maybe that's where you're at. Others of you, maybe you've been there, and because you've been there, you love hearing this right now. You're like, yeah, preach, Phil, amen. You, know, you guys are allowed to say amen, by the way. I don't, sometimes you come to church like, well, can we say amen? Yeah, if you want to say amen, I don't care. Or if you're like, no, I don't want to because this stinks, that's fine too. Um, some of you love hearing that. You're like, yes and amen, that's awesome. But if that's you, you've got to kind of hold on because Jesus isn't done yet. Because often what we do, and this isn't just in this conversation, I've noticed this in everything, in culture, in conversations, we get on this weird pendulum swing, and we go from one extreme to the other. We experience something negative on one extreme, and it's like, you know, uh, that was bad, that wasn't good, that wasn't healthy, and so instead of going, well, what's true, and what's right, and what's good, and let's figure out what that is, we go, no, what's good must just be, in the, be the far opposite ex extreme of what I just experienced. And so if, if religious kind of uh, legalism and fundamentalism, that kind of conservative nature that's just like it's all about rules, it's all about stuff, let me just swing to the far other extreme and go towards a more progressive or liberal version of faith. Rather than saying, no, wait, 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 so what's true? What's the way of Jesus? I will leave one branch and go all the way to the other. And I feel like Jesus would be like, well, hold up, hold up, let's continue. Back into John, um, he replied, this is the guy who's healed, speaking again to the religious leaders. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him, the man that he had healed. He found him in the temple and he said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Don't sin anymore so something worse doesn't happen to you. We, we looked at that text last week. 
But in that text, Jesus points people to the reality of sin. He tells this guy who he had healed, who he thought, like, his biggest problem was I'm paralyzed. He said, no, you actually had an even bigger problem. There is the reality of sin. It's the, it's the fundamental issue with every human being on the planet, that we have this sickness, this disease that's just like we destroy ourselves, we destroy other people, that sin ultimately leads to death. It leads to death in different parts of our lives. Ultimately, sin leads to physical death, and, and the, the most ultimate is it leads to a spiritual death, which is a separation eternally from God. That's the path that sin takes us down. And those tend to be the things, conversations about sin and death and, and judgment and hell, those are kind of the things that people that maybe have swung far to the more progressive or liberal side of Christianity would go, yeah, I don't know if I like that. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about judgment. Let's not talk about hell. Let's not talk about how people should live because that, that's, that's offensive and that feels very legalistic. But the problem with that approach is Jesus talked about those things. And Jesus talked about, like, Jesus, I, it's like, I, I like the Jesus who welcomes sinners. I like the Jesus who is justice-oriented. I like the Jesus who calls out the religious hypocrisy, but that's the same Jesus who talks about sin, who talks about judgment, who talks about hell. It's the same Jesus who has a sexual ethic that our world would consider re repressive. That's the, same, that's the same Jesus where on one, on one hand we're like, you know, yeah, it's not just about praying and reading your Bible and doing all those things. That's also the same Jesus, though, who daily would get away to be alone with his heavenly Father and to pray. The same Jesus who would know the scriptures. The same Jesus who, on one hand, in this kind of account with the Sabbath, is pointing to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and saying, you've missed the point. But it's also the same Jesus who kept Sabbath. While he was fine with breaking, you know, this kind of man-made Sabbath rules, Jesus would have kept Sabbath his entire life because he kept God's law perfectly. And so he, it's, it's, this, it's this thing where it's like we swing too far one way or the other, and Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not it. We're missing it. We're missing it. And so while religious conservatism or fundamentalism often drifts towards legalism, religious progressivism or liberalism often drifts towards license, where it's like, I'm kind of just going to do what I was going to do before and sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it and say it's Christian. And Jesus shows up and he's like, I, I got to push back against both groups. But that's not the way. We continue on. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And this will be the trajectory that continues. More and more he begins to offend these religious leaders. He begins to push back against their man-made rules. He begins pushing towards what the heart of God is, and they see that as a threat. They end up having him arrested and beaten and crucified. But for now, Jesus tells them, my father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus is basically telling these guys, you guys, you're missing, with the Sabbath, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. God is, he's still working. You know, again, it's not like God got tired and took a break. Like God is working. The goal of humanity and God and the relationship at the beginning of creation was for God to make everything, for him to dwell and for people to dwell with them, for them to be in, for people to be in that eternal seventh day rest. Sin enters into the picture and just destroys that. And from that moment on, God has been working 
relentlessly, tirelessly on the plan of redemption to restore things to how they were. And Jesus says, he's working, I'm working on that too. In fact, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I'm here to reverse the effects of sin and death. The Jews get ticked at him because he makes this massive identity claim about himself, making himself equal to God. That's what we're going to kind of get into next week, the claims that Jesus is making. But for today, let's just wrap with this. Take some time and let Jesus offend you. Let him bother you. Like, get un- like, what it's like, like, let him, it, it's okay if you're uncomfortable by the things Jesus says or he does. In fact, it's a good thing. And so maybe if you, if you lean more towards the conservative fundamentalist side, it's like, let Jesus push against that. If you lean more towards the progressive or liberal side, let Jesus push against that. You know, so often what, what we want to do is, is just bring Jesus into our camp. And whether it relates to faith or uh, the way that we view money or family or politics, anything about the world that we live in, if Jesus perfectly maps on to our already held views, we have a problem. Because he's going to come and push against that. No matter what it is, we're always on this process of being molded and shaped by him. One will put us on a path towards legalism. One will put us on a path towards license. And Jesus says, forget both of those. I want to put you on a path that leads to life. And yes, I can't help but alliterate because I'm a pastor and that's what we do. Legalism, license, or life. And Jesus says, look, I don't, I don't want you moving towards religiosity in this fundamentalist kind of like legalistic way. And I don't want you moving over here towards license and do whatever you want. I want you to be on a path that leads to life. I've come back to this, this verse several times in the series. We'll get to it eventually. It's in John 10, so it'll probably be like next year. But Jesus says, here's the reason, here's the reason that I've come. Like, there's a thief out there. There's an enemy out there, and he's come to kill and steal and destroy everything good in your life, everything God has for you. But I have come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. I have come to, to give you an abundant and flourishing life. I have come to give you a full life. I came to give you the life that you were meant to have that was lost at the very beginning. I've come to give you life but the path that leads to life is narrow. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. It's come, come follow me. Come, come be a part of this different way, this third way of Jesus that isn't getting sucked into the extremes. It's this going, and it's not compromise. It's not like, well, we'll just meet you halfway. It's like, no, it's, it's an entirely different thing. So as we kind of wrap things up this morning, we'll move into our time of communion. And as we do that, I, I want to invite you to just take a little bit of time to reflect and to be offended by Jesus. We come to communion and we remember Jesus and these little, these reminders, these elements, a, a piece of bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for us, a cup of juice that represents his blood that he freely poured out for us. This is one of these things that, that the church was, is, is, we, we know very few things about the early church. But one of the things we know is that whenever they gathered, they had this simple meal. And they were told to do it to remember, to remember, to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We remember, we have this picture of the cross. And the cross in the first century and the cross now, something that's offensive. It just is. It's something that bothers us, that upsets our kind of sensitivities. The Apostle Paul comes along and says, hey, to, to some people, the cross is a stumbling block. He says, to some people, it seems like foolishness. But to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. 
power of God is found in the cross. And as it relates to kind of the extremes that we were talking about, for, for one group, if you mean, lean, again, more towards that liberal progressive side, you look at the cross and, and you're offended because the cross is a picture of sin. On one hand, like, it's this reminder of that's what sin looks like, this, this grotesque, just evil thing, just like human evil to the max of Jesus naked, bleeding, suffering. That's what our sin looks like. It's offensive because it reminds us, it's like, it's my sin that put him up there. But then it offends us on the other side as well for those of us that think that I can just perform, that I can just follow the rules, that I can be good enough, that it's about the things you do or don't do. The cross reminds us of, no, it's not. It's about grace. It is forgiveness. It is the love of God. It is nothing that you have done. No amount of religious activity you will ever do will ever save you. That God in his great love sent his son Jesus to pay for our sins, to pave the path that we can come back to him, that we can experience life eternal in his kingdom. And so I want to pray for us. As you feel led, you can come up and take the elements of communion. Um, if you're not comfortable with taking communion today, that's fine. There's no pressure to do that. Um, and, and you can take whenever you feel led to take it. Go back to your seat and whenever you're ready. So, Father, we thank you. Um, God, that you do love us in a way that is beyond, it's beyond words. It's beyond our ability to comprehend or explain. But Jesus, that you would come to this earth, that you would uh, live a human existence, that you would suffer and die on a cross for our sins raised from the dead, defeating the power of sin and grave forever. Lord, we praise you for that. God, I pray as we take this simple meal to remember your sacrifice, to remember your love, that we would be drawn to the way of Jesus, that we would be drawn to the way, the path that leads to life. God, forgive us of the times that we drift towards legalism and rules and making it all about that. Forgive us from the times that that we shy away from things that we need to talk about, that we, that we ignore the, the seriousness of sin. God, forgive us of those things. Keep us on the path that leads to you. Keep us on the path that leads to life. Fill us with your spirit. Transform us by his